Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Thank you for joining the conversation on Colloquium. This episode is brought to you by Excelsior Capital, an investment platform focused on democratizing private equity by providing individuals access to direct opportunities. To learn more about the firm, please visit excelsiorgp.com and connect with Brian on LinkedIn. Hello and welcome to the conversation on Colloquium. Today I have with me Sharna Goldsecker. She is the founder of 2164 Incorporated. She is a leading expert on multi-generational and next-generation philanthropy. And as a next-gen donor herself, offers a trusted insider's perspective. So Sharna, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Brian. It's good to be here. Absolutely. We're going to get into your book a little bit, but I want to start with, I don't know if provocative is the right term to use, but how worried should today's investment advisor landscape be that these next-gen folks are going to be leaving their firms and migrating elsewhere? So I'm sure you're familiar with this research that after the first parent passes away, 45% of the kids stay with their parent's advisor. And after the second parent passes, only 2% stays with their parent's advisor. But the beauty of having that research, as shocking as it may feel, is that we have a heads up (laughs) that we can start building relationships with our next generation clients today. So I always encourage advisors to just reach out and say, hi, can I take you to coffee or can we have a Zoom call or I want to get to know you or have you know who I am and how I operate and let you know I'm here to answer any questions. I listened to your to the book, which we'll get into. And, and aside from the really good content you talked about in terms of this whole next gen movement, I think from a statistical standpoint, that was the most breathtaking data point that I heard throughout the entire through the entire book, and one that must really alarm the industry as a whole. So my question to you is, are you seeing any change within the advisory industry in relation to that pretty remarkable statistic? When I came into the field about 20 years ago, 
the metaphor I like to use was one of succession planning of the baton passing, right? You'd have an elder who managed the family business or oversaw the family's investments, was the chair of the family foundation board, whatever the different enterprises may be in the family enterprise. And when that leader came a time where either they passed away or were ready for retirement, they would pass the baton to the next generation. And now I think the metaphor has changed. We're no longer in a relay race, but we're fielding a team and playing a game together. We have multiple generations, not just two, an elder and an ex-gen, but we have five generations above the age of 21 in American society today. Traditionalists, baby boomers, Gen X, millennials, even Gen Z is over age 21. And we can talk more about those different generations if you'd like, but we have the potential to have two or three or sometimes four generations around family decision-making tables at the same time. And so I think that firms investment advisors or managers are starting to see this within their own organizations where they have multiple generations of colleagues around the decision-making table and they're starting to feel this with their clients as well. So some firms are at the front end of this transition from a relay race to a team and are starting to say, well, why don't we have a multi-generational advisory team serve a multi-generational client system? Why don't we have some younger advisors reach out to our younger family clients and start to build those relationships now? Because as peers, they may foster connection. And it seems like, you know, like Hemingway said, going bankrupt, it, it took a long time, then it happened all of a sudden. Mm. People have been portending this shift happening within the baby boomer population to the millennial. There's all of these, you know, big numbers thrown around about the amount of wealth that will be transferred over the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years. And the demographics are always fascinating to me. And you talk about this in the book, how we have these multiple factors of people are just living longer than they used to 50 or 100 years ago, but that also that wealth is being created earlier within families. So my question is, if all these things are happening, how does that impact the giving part of things, because it seems like even within our own family, you've got people at the table who it used to be that philanthropy meant going to galas and balls and it was social currency. And then you've got people like my younger sister-in-law who everything is a double or triple line, bottom line business. It's all about impact investing. It's all about ESG. How could you possibly come together and make decisions about how to invest that money into philanthropy, given just huge variability across a multi-generational family today? We raised a lot of nuances that I'm particularly interested in. So let me address a couple of them. First, you referred to the wealth transfer that's underway. Paul Shervish and John Havens from the Center for Wealth and Philanthropy at Boston College came out with the original wealth transfer research, which I'm sure you know well. Originally 41 trillion, then they revised it to 59 trillion would be transferred in the next 25 years. So we're seeing the largest wealth transfer in history, as you mentioned to the baby boomers and then to their adult children, the Gen X millennial generations. And about half of that, they said, was going philanthropic. So nearly 30 children, trillion, excuse me, would be transitioned in bequests or inter vivos is how they called it during lifetime giving. So 
it's true that we had a warning signal that the transition was underway. And, and we all knew this privately, right? These were conversations many of us had with our trust and estate attorneys in, our, in their offices and privately planning for what would come next. And then the wealth transfer research kind of publicly brought us all into this conversation about how do we plan for the future of this wealth transfer? And how do we plan for multi-generational philanthropy if half of that wealth is going philanthropically? We also have seen pretty clearly in the last few years that young people are making significant money in, you know, what's been referred to as the gold rush of the West or on Wall Street in the East. And now I think something like 1% of the country owns 43% of the wealth, right? So we're finding that because of the wealth transfer or earning wealth at young ages, young people stand to be the most significant donors in history, not just because of the amount of money, but because they're, they have access to it at a young age. And you mentioned this too, they're not waiting till the sunset of their lives to retire into philanthropic leisure like previous generations who maybe had an accumulation phase and then said, okay, I'm retiring and I'm going to start giving charitably. Young people are noticing that the issues are grave around the world and they have the resources and they want to make a difference now. So we're seeing that trend as well. And lastly, we're seeing that if they're used to technological disruptions in all kinds of marketplaces, they want to see that kind of uh, revolution happen in the philanthropic space. My co-author, Michael Moody, likes to say they're not bomb-throwing revolutionaries, you know, but they're willing to try whatever needs to be attempted to make an impact. One of the next-gen donors we interviewed for our book, Generation Impact, his name is Daniel Laurie. He said, you can't keep doing the same thing and expect different results. And so what we heard from Daniel, really, we heard from so many of the next gen who we surveyed and interviewed that they're willing to innovate and take risks and experiment, use different kinds of vehicles to make a difference philanthropically, uh, your sister-in-law being one of them. And so the book is Generation Impact, How Next Gen Donors Are Revolutionizing Giving. I listened to, listened to it on Audible. Highly recommend people check it out. We'll include the link in the show notes. And one of the, you know, as you alluded to, one of the big questions and thoughts that I had after listening to it was, I agree, this landscape of next gen, you know, philanthropy is massively different. How much of it is because the last 50 plus years of philanthropy seems to have not made much of a difference in many areas versus how much of it is this mindset of this millennial next gen generation thinking that, we can disrupt things. We can do things differently. To your point, we're we're passionate about certain causes. And it was instilled in us very early on that this is part of our professional and social and personal lives, not something to be done after we go to the beach and, and drink our margaritas. So Michael and I interviewed through quantitative survey data and qualitative interviews, hundreds of next gen who are uh, Gen Xers and millennials. and tried to get a handle on how those next-gen donors who stand to be the most influential donors in history are thinking and operating and what motivates them and how what they're giving to and how they're giving, which we wrote about in Generation Impact. I appreciate you taking the time to listen to it. And one of the questions we asked them was, you know, 
what do you think motivates your family to give? And what do you think motivates you? And so they said, you know, we think previous generations of family members were motivated to give out of, a, you know, maybe a sense of duty and obligation, maybe because their friends asked them for a gift. And so there's a little quid pro quo happening, maybe for tax purposes, because their advisor said it would behoove them to do that. And when we said, well, what about you? What motivates you? They said, impact first. It's always one of their top three choices of why they're giving impact first. You know, values and not valuables are important to all generations, but the next generation is different in that how they're giving is about impact, creating that impact, and all their choices are often informed by wanting to make an impact, seeing that impact, knowing how their resources would make a difference in the world. So to answer your question, I think there are always people in all the generations who want to feel like they're philanthropic dollars is making a difference in the world. It's not that this is a new concept the next generation came up with, but they are prioritizing it in such a way that not only their grant making, but their asset allocation or their willingness to not take a tax deduction and even give through a C4 organization for political change, sometimes setting up an LLC to be able to fund a for-profit entity to have social impact through new kinds of innovations in the private sector. I mean, using all the kinds of vehicles, all the tools in their toolbox to make a difference. And that is primarily what's driving them. And how much of that do you think is some of these big issues that people have been trying to tackle for a hundred plus years in America? And let's go back to that initial golden age of call it the 19th century of the industrialization of huge amounts of wealth being created, education, chronic hunger, homelessness. These have unfortunately been chronic issues that have yet to be solved or addressed. Do you sense frustration within the next-gen community about the way things have been done in the past, about some of these larger macro issues that, you know, (laughs) unfortunately have not been solved, despite people throwing a lot of money and time and resources at them? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you fit on an interesting nerve. There's respect for legacy and upon whose shoulders they stand. You know, we heard people say in different ways, I know that I didn't hit a triple, I was born on third base. You know, like I had privilege that gave me opportunities to be here, or even people who didn't grow up with parents who had wealth, they sacrificed to give me the opportunities that I have. And so there's incredible respect for where people came from and what had been tried before. But there's also, to your point, a greater awareness that sometimes we've been trying things and not accomplishing, and there's enough wealth in the world to come together and address some of these issues. So what we heard NextGen talk about was their desire to be strategic, right? To not give gifts out of obligation or because friends asked them, or to your point earlier, they should go to a gala, you know, to really use their money in strategic ways. And they described that by not funding symptoms of problems, but going upstream and getting at root causes. So, you know, how do we transform the education system and not just give people backpacks to get to school? How do we sort of transform agriculture and, and food security issues so we're not dropping off lunches, you know, or, or meals at the food shelter, the homeless shelter and the, or the food pantries? So going upstream, getting at root causes, many of them are collaborating and working together. So individual donors aren't funding things that have become a drop in the bucket, but are working together to leverage each other's ideas and strategies, dollars to work systemically on an issue. And many are saying... I grew up with privilege. I don't understand the issues on the ground as well as people on the ground do. And so they're building relationships. You know, you mentioned the golden age. I think there's this perception that previous generations might have thought about the institutions they built 
the names they could put their, the buildings they could put their names on, the recognition that came with that. And they were terrific leaders that people could follow into philanthropy in that way. Younger generations are saying, I don't want to build the building. I want to work in the building. I want to work on the ground. I want to understand what the needs are, collaborate with people who can help me figure out what the best solutions are to these problems rather than be the donor who says, oh, I know how to solve this because we haven't accomplished it yet, to your point. And I appreciated that sentiment in the book, given as I am a millennial and every generation does this, right? But there is certainly a handle put on us that we are lazy, vain, <laughs> preoccupied people that don't necessarily want to to work hard. And I don't think that's the case at all. And I think to your point about values over valuables, I think we have less of an affinity towards some of these, you know, trinkets and baubles that our parents had in terms of how they think about giving, mm. which begs the question. And I talked about this with my wife last night at dinner. She runs our family foundation and is involved with nonprofit community in Middle Tennessee. What does that mean for the future of some of these middle market or middlemen organizations like United Way, who in the past helped direct funds to certain end user groups because maybe that information wasn't widely disseminated or people couldn't access the research about where to put their money to work? Now that information is widely accessible. What do you think the future is for some of those umbrella organizations as you put them in the book? Yeah, I think that there's still a role to play for those intermediary organizations that you call middlemen. You know, I think they know the local groups on the ground and can help direct resources to where they're needed. Community foundations, federations often serve similar purposes as the United Way you mentioned. I think one of the challenges when cultivating relationships with next-gen donors who might utilize the organizations is that they see them as large and opaque. So to your point, the next gen go right to the website to do their own research, right? Something like 91% of the people we interviewed do primarily do their research on the web first to understand what a nonprofit's doing. And they're expecting transparency. You know, they grew up in an age where they could access information quickly and easily, accessibly. And so they want the same from the nonprofits with whom they're going to support. They want to see the mission, what they're funding, who they're supporting, where their money is going would be the primary, the primary way of seeing impact. They want to even sometimes see the financials of an institution accessible on a website. And so I don't think that most institutions are that transparent yet about what they're doing, where funds are going, and how they're spending their dollars. And I think the more transparent they can be, the more they'll be able to build relationships with next-gen donors. One said to me, you never expect me to walk into a clothing store, hand you $500 and say, pick out my clothes for me. You know, so why should I walk into a nonprofit, hand them $500 and say, you tell me where to put it? Now, there's another, you know, extreme of that spectrum where next gen donors are saying, tell me what to fund. I don't know what all the needs are on the ground. But I think for both ends of the spectrum, they both want information, transparency, communication, clarity about where their dollars are going, whether they get the advice or they have their own ideas. Yeah, I agree. I do think the end at this point, I guess the consumer, the donor, as that shifts, these organizations are going to have to pivot based on their expectations and needs. I know my personally, when I entered into nonprofit space, I joined a large kind of national group within their Tennessee chapter and went to my first board meeting and was blown away by how big the board was. And I actually read the bylaws. I had to ask for them. No term limits on the board. Wow. And so we had 50 plus people, maybe less than half were coming regularly. And it was purely a check the box type of thing for a lot of these groups. And I didn't last very long without an organization. And I think a lot of groups are going to have similar experiences. Let's 
I mean, you're starting to talk about engagement. Yeah. You know, I'm particularly interested in because I think that next gen are hoping to be more hands-on donors, right? They don't want to just write a check and or type it into their electronic online banking system and have it go through the ether and disappear. In fact, they want to be more involved with the organization. And so, you know, I think that the typically nonprofits have one mechanism for engagement, which you just talked about, the board role. And that's a critical role, but not all next gen want to sit on boards. They want to serve an organization. So even if you do have, you can make room for next gen, there's always maybe a few who would like to join the board, but more so I've seen them want to get to know the work of an organization. So I try to encourage nonprofits to think about like what are the myriad ways that next gen could be involved. It could be, again, it's stuffing envelopes as needed, but you know, committees don't always require trustee level, board director level to serve on a committee. Could you bring people who have financial expertise to serve on your finance committee or investment experience on the investment committee, accountants to be on the audit committee? In particular, I heard women say, I'm always put on the fundraising or gala committee. I have a legal degree. I have a, a business, an MBA. You know, think about all the ways that you could utilize my talents, right? So we encourage nonprofits to think about like just what about building the website, writing the newsletter? You know, like there's so many ways that they can leverage the volunteer hours of their donors' talents to further engage them in the organization. And by doing that, that's another way of pulling back the curtain to show them what happens in the organization and how the mission is manifested day to day and cultivate that relationship with their donors over time. Right, which is the conversation I hear echoed across many organizations that we're a member of, there's more value beyond just the dollar, right? And you talk about the power of networks, how millennials are some of the most networked generations ever, and and how we can utilize social media and other things to get you know big projects done. Interestingly, my, my wife and the school that she works with, they don't call it community service anymore. They call it public purpose or service learning, right? And it's matching passion and skill set with an on-mandate 501c3 nonprofit organization to kind of have that double, triple impact that we talked about early in the conversation within the organization itself and not just a bake sale or, you know, you talk about rising the rising line on the thermometer of the fundraising. I just don't think that is interesting to people any longer. You know, you're, you're reminding me that we heard from NextGen that they maybe don't have the bandwidth to do everything they're asked to do, but they do want to go all in on a couple of causes or organizations they care deeply about. And by going all in, they'll use their time, talent, treasure. And we added a fourth T, ties to that because of the networks you're describing. And so, you know, even if we just start with time, we heard stories from next gen donors who said, look, I've been volunteering, like the, you know, programs you just described that your wife is involved with leading at your children's school since I was 12 years old, right? Victoria Rogers, who grew up in Chicago, said, you know, I went to school on the south side of Chicago and starting at 12, my dad encouraged me to volunteer at the Sue Duncan Children's Center nearby the school. I taught art, taught art classes. It actually helped me identify my own passion. I started to volunteer, intern at Creative Time, which does incredible public art displays. She worked at Kickstarter and organized the 
giving to arts organizations on their platforms. She joined the board of the Brooklyn Museum of Art and recently started the Black Museum Trustee Alliance. You know, all of this before the age of 30. And so we actually find that starting early is a good thing. And that when nonprofits sort of start to think about next-gen donors for their boards, they might have been already engaged in the nonprofit sector for 10, 15 years by the time they've arrived at that nonprofit's doorstep. And so how do we, you know, think about approaching next-gen as having wisdom maybe beyond their years suggest uh, and having experience in the nonprofit sector that can benefit the organizations they're involved in? Because to your point, they've been marrying purpose to privilege to purpose, right? They've been serving for many years already. So I want to revisit a concept that you alluded to early on and piggyback on a statement you just made this kind of blurred line between what would be historically considered philanthropy, right? Just pure giving to an organization versus investing. And we we hear a lot of buzzwords about impact investing, ESG, you know, B Corps, double, triple bottom line businesses. How is that detracting from the conversation you think about philanthropy? Is it just Wall Street window dressing to get more AUM? Or do you see it really fundamentally shifting the landscape of how next gens and millennials think about their own venture philanthropy? I think this is a fundamental shift. Next gen want to align their values seamlessly with their resource allocation, whether that be on the grant making side, the asset allocation side, how they spend their consumer dollars, how they spend their hours volunteering, the corporations they choose to go work for. I mean, it's one of the top three ways that Gen Zers choose where to be an employee is the cause that the organization supports. So I don't think it's window dressing. I think we're now in the shift where people are asking advisors to talk about the values choices with an ESG lens that they're making. And some are even going further to say, who are the advisors making those choices? And a couple of next-gen donors in particular that we interviewed work with the Diverse Asset Managers Initiative to even look at the diverse perspectives and the lived experience that the managers themselves bring to the decision-making table. So one of the things we encourage investment advisors to do is not to actually start with the risk return issue that we usually raise, but actually to start with a conversation around values. So when you meet a next-gen potential client, who are you? What do you care about? What do you value? What do you prioritize in the world? How do your values inform the kind of work you do? Where do you volunteer? What you're involved with? The choices that you're making? What should I know about your values and how they should inform the asset allocation? Right, that's where I would start. And that's where they're starting with their grant making as well. So they're seeing it as a full package. In uh, 2020, we, Michael, my co-author and I did a follow-up survey with Gen X millennials and Gen Zers to understand how they were responding to the multiple crises of multiple pandemics. And I think 41% said we're using our consumer dollars in alignment with our values to not just buy from large multinational online corporations, but to purchase our food and our holiday presents from local and BIPOC-owned stores. You know, we're using our asset allocation to look in alignment with our values. We're even using our businesses to one one woman in, in New York said that she lent her engineering team to the United Way to help build a better transaction so they could collect funds in a more efficient way during COVID. You know, they're using all the, the tools at their disposal and in a values aligned way. So I think it's important to start to think this way. Who's doing the most interesting work right now in your opinion in this space from a next gen new different idea 
and maybe you don't necessarily agree with it, but who's on the vanguard right now that we should be paying attention to? I think you're asking me to choose between my children. (laughs) I work with next-gen donors, so I'm not sure I I can pick. I guess I would just say, I think in the last year, we really saw next-gen as sort of future leaders. And at this moment, we're really seeing them as not just next, but now gen, you know, they're stepping into their, their agency, they're becoming the donors they aspire to be, they're responding to the challenges of the day, and in a rapid and redoubled way, and feel a sense of urgency to make a difference. So whether it's around the family philanthropy table, kind of insisting that we drop our, you know, the hoops that we make nonprofits go through and sort of advance the grants and move the money out the door to, you know, setting up bigger gifts that can be matched by, you know, other people, other corporate entities, joining collaboratives to make systemic change possible in the fields of education, climate change, gender issues. I mean, there's so much exciting work going on right now that I think there's there are a lot of great examples to point to. And I was at a family office conference a couple of weeks ago and I'm 39 and still considered a next gen at these events that I go to. And you look around the room and it's pretty startling. There really aren't that many people under the age of 40 at these events. If somebody listening who maybe is a first generation wealth creator or multi-generational family, but didn't really participate in some of these networks or forums, what are some resources that people can lean on to kind of learn about all the exciting things happening in the space? Obviously, your book is one, but there are other directions that you would point them in? So I think there's similarities between inheritors stepping into their imminent responsibilities and uh, first-generation earned wealth creators who are clarifying their philanthropic identity. I don't know if you've read Jim Grubman's book, Strangers in Paradise, but he talks about how if you've had wealth before the age of 12, you're a native. And if you earn it after age 12, you're an immigrant acculturating to a new land. And so I think that those people who didn't grow up with wealth, but now have the resources to be philanthropic are figuring out how they want to do that effectively. And so both are going on learning journeys. And I just encourage both audiences to really think about all the opportunities out there, whether it's, you know, whether that you're a verbal visual learner and want to read or watch podcasts, and, you know, even looking at the letters that the giving pledge people write about why they're committing half of their resources to philanthropy. I think those are so moving on the Giving Pledge website to attending workshops that 2164 offers on philanthropic identity formation. We run one workshop with TPW, the philanthropic workshop called the Generation Impact Accelerator. And how can we help you accelerate the impact you can have by really clarifying your grant making guidelines, getting clear about who you are, what you value, the kind of change you want to make in the world and how you strategically bring your resources to bear to those ends. And then I think there are lots of new giving circles where if you're new to giving or want to practice on a lower scale, you can make a gift, leverage your gift with others and sort of learn together, you know, whether it's a women's giving circle, one focused on education, climate change, maybe your region. In particular, I know in the last year, Atlanta, Ann Arbor, Honolulu, like new giving circles popped up and formed. And from Baltimore, there's an incredible effort, Baltimore Invest, where 
nonprofit leaders and funders are sitting around the same table, learning about what the needs are at the moment, reading proposals together, working together to make joint decisions to affect change. So I think there are all kinds of engagement and learning opportunities on this journey. What do you think about the Giving Pledge and this whole burgeoning field of folks that wanted to spend it to zero or want their last check to bounce at their lifetime? They don't necessarily want to create a huge bureaucracy. What do you think about that trend? So for those who might not know the Giving Pledge, Bill and Melinda Gates and Warren Buffett encouraged people, and actually what I understand David Rockefeller was an early thought partner on that effort as well, encouraged their peers to allocate 50% of their wealth philanthropically. And then people make that pledge, sign that pledge, write a letter to commit to that. I think that it's admirable, really, to bring your resources to bear on the major issues we're facing today. We need all the ideas and solutions and resources at our disposal to affect inequities and poverty and vulnerable communities, health issues. This is not the last pandemic we're going to face. Climate change, our earth is in peril. You know, so frankly, I I think people might have their critiques about resources not being allocated quickly enough or one strategy versus another. But to me, that's in the details. The, the, The gesture to give significantly during your lifetime is valiant. And I think that those kinds of networks, whether it's the Giving Pledge or others, are also, you know, places to learn and to compare notes. And have you tried this? And what vehicle are you working from? You know, C3, a C4, an LLC? How are you, you know, furthering your impact? Those To have those kinds of conversations among peers is is valuable to the learning curve as well. Same question. I would love to hear your impression about how Mackenzie Scott is going about her giving I won't say who, but somebody very close to me benefited recently from a donation they made to the organization. No restraints, no real oversight, no veto, no strings attached, no spending clauses. It was a pure kind of bucket gift, as we would say. What do you think about the way that she is going about her philanthropy? Uh, So I don't know her personally, but from what I'm reading alongside everyone else, I appreciate one that she's using a philanthropic advisor. She has a lot of money to move. And I think there might be some self-consciousness in the field to reach out to a philanthropic advisor and say, you know, hey, can you help me sort through? There are a million and a half nonprofits in the United States and 10 million globally. It can be paralyzing to have so many choices between right and right to make. And I know donors who feel stuck and not moving their resources because of that. So I appreciate that she reached out in this case to Bridgespan, and there are lots of other philanthropic advisors in the space to help her clarify, you know, what she wanted to fund. I appreciate that they're conducting due diligence and sort of seeing how is the, the health of the organization and what they're aiming to accomplish before making decisions. I appreciate that she's bringing a gender and diversity lens to the choices, not just funding some of the usual suspects, but really looking broadly at who's impacting our communities and allocating resources in a way that aren't often. I mean, if we look at the breakdown of philanthropic dollars, something like 7% of philanthropic funding goes to women's organizations and less to minority groups. So, you know, it's she's making a significant difference to those areas that need it greatly. I think I also want to say that it takes courage to be transparent, as we talked about before, and to let other people know how you're doing something and the choices you're making. It opens you up, right, to commentary about that. And the fact that she, right, is communicating about it, I think is admirable. And I think people can only learn from that. So I I give her a lot of credit. Yeah, the article I was reading this week, I think it was in the New Yorker, about her her giving and her 
her almost lack of structure. And it reminded me of this conversation going on within the family office world about how many people are starting or have started recently a family office, not so much, but they care about a multi-generational time horizon, but because it's almost an ego trip. Mm. And I wonder if there has been some of that within the charitable philanthropy community the last 25, 50 years that her response has been, I have a sense of urgency to get this money out the door and to not create this edifice to my ego, but to try to you know create, be a catalyst for change as quickly as possible. I hadn't really thought about that before. And I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. I find that it's often the attorneys who encourage their clients which vehicle to choose. And so many attorneys are in favor of private foundations, which have led to clients setting those up. And I think if you want complete autonomy, it makes sense to to choose the philanthropic vehicle of a private foundation versus, let's say, a donor advised fund or, or something else. I agree that her choice of lack of structure has lands on me as if it's done with humility. And I think we've only seen an increase in donors choosing to set up donor advised funds and work through community foundations and other gift funds, which have less infrastructure and less personal branding on them and are really looking for the most efficient way to allocate their resources. So there are still donors who you know, want to lead by example and put their name on it and God bless them for making the grants that they are. But I think that there's a groundswell of donors who have humble intentions and who are I think the numbers bear out to that end when we look at the growth of donor advised funds in the last 10 years. You're deep in this space, obviously well-connected within the community. Are you optimistic about where the space is heading right now? Mm. I think that the the dual pandemics of COVID and racial reckoning have, have shown a spotlight on issues we known we have known have always been there, but now encouraged attention and momentum in a way that's been much needed. So that brings me optimism and Families who knew they might want to engage their next generation in their philanthropy have recognized why wait. And so we, we at 2164 have seen an acceleration of engagement of the next generation, which we think can only be a good thing to bring more people around the table to, to move resources for social change. And lastly, I've been pleasantly surprised that donors have really minimized the bureaucratic hoops that they've asked nonprofits to jump through to apply for funding or to report on that funding, really to move money where it's most needed at the moment. So I'm hoping that many of these changes become uh, lasting as we move forward in the coming decades to, to bring impact to the issues that are so needed. Could you talk a little bit more about 2164 and the work that you all do there? Thank you. So 2164 specializes in donor education for next gen and new donors who are trying to clarify their philanthropic identity and how they want to make an impact in the world. Uh, Secondly, we work with families who are trying to engage multiple generations around the philanthropic and decision-making tables. And third, we train and provide tools to advisors who serve those individual and family clients, helping them to discuss the human side of wealth and make those conversations really serve the purpose of what the family is trying to accomplish. Well, Sharon, I want to thank you for joining me today. I really enjoyed the book. I've been enjoying learning about 2164, receiving your content and newsletters there. If people are interested in connecting with you because they want to learn more about the book, the work that you are doing in 2164, what's the best way for them 
to go about doing that. Thanks so much for asking, Brian. We're at 2164.net, 2164.net. And the book, again, is Generation Impact, How Next-Gen Donors Are Revolutionizing Giving. And I'm grateful for all of your interest and attention to the subject. It's a pleasure to speak with you today. Yeah, absolutely. It was a lot of fun. And I encourage people to check out the book as well as the website. David Wells, who's a mutual friend of ours, introduced us and spoke very highly of you. And it was a great conversation and one that I think is very relevant to what's happening today. So I want to thank you again for the time. And uh, wish you the best of luck with the work that you have in front of you. It's, it's going to be a lot, but you're doing yeoman's work. So thank you for that. I appreciate it. It's good to have you on the on side. <laughs> Absolutely. Take care. You too, Ryan. Thanks again. Thank you for joining the conversation on Colloquium. If you enjoyed what you heard in this episode, please like, rate, or leave us a review. And stay tuned for our next episode coming soon. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Need new glasses or want a fresh new style? Warby Parker has you covered. Glasses start at just 95 bucks, including anti-reflective, scratch-resistant prescription lenses that block 100% of UV rays. Every frame's designed in-house, with a huge selection of styles for every face shape. And with Warby Parker's free home try-on program, you can order five pairs to try at home for free. Shipping is free both ways, too. Go to warbyparker.com covered to try five pairs of frames at home for free warbyparker.com slash covered.